0: first scripture reading this afternoon is from Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, you, Chris. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 11. Listen now for what the Spirit has to say to us through this passage. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first sign, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? God, this truly is your word for your people. We pray that your spirit would descend upon us, would open our hearts and our ears and our lives to what it is that you have to say to us in this place and in this time. We thank you for your word. Amen. So, in 76 days, uh, 1,824 hours, what is certainly the most anticipated event of my life will commence. Um, 254 days ago, or 6,095 hours, uh, right next door, actually, at the High Museum of Art, I somewhat awkwardly pulled a ring out of my pocket, held it tightly in my sweating palm, and uh, waited for the exact right moment. And when I had discerned that it was indeed the exact right moment, I took Kristen by the hand and I began kind of stumbling through this loosely prepared speech, expressing my love and commitment to her. And when I couldn't wait any longer, I got down on one knee because I was told that's what you're supposed to do. I slid the ring that we had designed together onto the finger of my beloved and I asked her to be my wife and my partner. Marry me. The anticipation leading up to that moment, the exact moment of proposal was excruciating and wonderful. She knew it was coming, and I knew the answer before I asked the question, but somehow the whole process was this kind of terrifying rush of excitement. And then in just a few seconds, the much-anticipated moment had passed. The state of being that we had kind of been building towards over about a year, a little over a year, was, was in just a moment realized. And this mix of joy and relief began to sink in. Uh, a faint and unsure awareness of transformation entered my consciousness, and suddenly it dawned on me, I had a new name. I was now fiancé. <laughs> I had never been fiancé before. There was a great clip from Seinfeld, maybe the dingo itcher baby. Does everybody know that one? I was going to show that, you know, but then I decided it wasn't appropriate, so I just told you about it instead. <clears throat> um, I had been boyfriend. I had been man-friend, maybe, but, but instead, uh, I am now fiancé. I got a new name, and along with this new name, um, interestingly enough, came kind of a new waiting game, new events to plan and to prepare for, new anticipation. There had been anticipation leading up to this moment, and then the moment happened, and now there's this new anticipation. By the time it actually happens, we will have been engaged for less than a year, but, but the anticipation of hearing and of saying the words I do, of the party and of the honeymoon, of physically moving myself and my stuff into a shared home, of entering into the grace and what is often thought to be the completeness of marriage of receiving and being the source of yet another new name. The anticipation can feel like an eternity. Anticipation. Uh, Waiting. Waiting for the exact moment of transformation when a new name is given and the object of your love becomes your lover is excruciating and it is wonderful. It is terrifying and it is exciting. And though it's relegated to just... A few Sundays a year, namely in Advent and some in Lent, by our church calendar, anticipation is really a constant reality of our faith. Our two passages tonight that Chris read and and that you heard me read, um, from the end of Isaiah and from the beginning of John's gospel, are, are anticipatory passages. They both imagine a reality that's kind of somewhere out in the future, Um, Isaiah does it with poetry and John does it with what he calls signs, but both of these writers seem to have found something compelling about the image of a wedding, this perfectly common cultural event, as a metaphor for the anticipation of the completion of God's saving work. The last 11 chapters of Isaiah from which Chris read was most likely written during a time in Israel's history that's known as the Restoration Period. Um, those Israelites who had been exiled uh, were allowed to return to their homeland after about a half of a century of being prisoners of war in Babylon. Um, and the land to which these POWs return is, of course, the promised land. It's the land of Solomon and David and the temple. It's the land of Samuel and Elijah and even of I, uh, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. This This land that these folks had been separated from and now returned to, is more than soil and grass. It is the center of worship. It's the source of identity and the proof of God's favor on these, the chosen people of God. To be separated from that land and from its worshiping community is not simply to move, but it's, it's more like suffering a divorce or, or becoming an amputee. Part of the core existence of this people is cut off. They are no longer the same people that they were. Prior to the Holocaust, some 2,500 years later, exile kind of stood in Israel's history as the event that most challenged and questioned the faithfulness of God towards these supposedly chosen people. And yet, some of the Bible's most beautiful and hopeful literature is believed to have been composed by exiled Jews. As you can imagine, the exiled people of Israel were a people who lived and breathed anticipation for the exact moment when they would be returned to their homeland, the exact moment when they could set foot in the temple and worship their God with peace and gladness for the exact moment of becoming one again with their God and their land and one another in completeness and finality. But when we're separated from the places and the people that we love or from the life that we hope for, it's easy to imagine that the fullness of God's salvation consists in simply returning to that place or being joined to that person or achieving that social or economic or legal status. And as much excitement and joy and anticipation as I rightly have towards the day of my own wedding, I have to remind myself that the saying of those vows, like the transformative moments in any other situation in life, they're not an end but a beginning from which mine and Kristen's journey together, we'll continue with new joys and new struggles, right alongside our seasoned joys and our weathered struggles. Now, the people of Israel returned to the promised land and, and found not the fullness of God's salvation, but instead found a life in the midst of God's ongoing salvation. Israel You see, they were saved from their enemies in that time and in that place. But as our text makes clear, the text that Chris read, Israel's salvation is still not complete, nor is God finished, nor will God be silent or quiet. The passage written to a people who had already seen their hopes realized, we hope that we can get out of this place. We hope that we can go back home passage written to these people, once they are home, begins this way. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, until her salvation goes forth as a burning torch. All the way through, this passage is written in future tense, and I can't help but wonder if the israelites who were rebuilding the temple and reestablishing their lives their lives in this land are thinking god just finish it up already why must there always be more we hope and we hope and we hope for this day and it happens and something else doesn't seem right somehow we still aren't home why tomorrow is, is a big day. Well, really, not just tomorrow. Today and tomorrow and kind of the whole year is kind of a big year in um, the life and the history of this country. Uh, tomorrow is the second inauguration of our nation's first black president. It is the 30th anniversary of the establishment of MLK Day as a national holiday. This year, and August 28th to be exact, will mark the 50th anniversary of King's I Have a Dream speech. And it has already marked, on January 1st, the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's final delivery of the Emancipation Proclamation. I imagine a number of us have have gone to see Lincoln uh, in theaters this year. It's a great film. It's a big year. The history, though, of black men and women in America is one that confirms Israel's experience of anticipated and ongoing, not final, salvation. It confirms that freedom from slavery, for instance, while an experience of salvation in and of itself, doesn't necessitate equal protection under the law, for instance. It demonstrates that equal protection under the law, while a victory in and of itself, doesn't necessitate equal opportunity in the land. It demonstrates that even the inauguration of a black president while an unquestionable sign that the racial tides have turned towards justice doesn't actually accomplish justice for millions of black Americans who all too frequently find themselves to be the victims of their nation's progress rather than its beneficiaries. Salvation, it would appear, comes in stages. We celebrate its victories in their times and in their places, as we would celebrate a wedding with vows and with wine and with dancing. But before the celebration is over, the wine always seems to run out. There is something else waiting to be saved. There is some other hurdle waiting to be gotten through. And it's not really that surprising. I mean, we kind of anticipate each little moment of salvation as if it were the final moment. Um, if only I could get hired, if only I could afford to go to that school or if I could afford that house, if only I weren't sick or in prison or hungry or thirsty or addicted, if only I could get married, then everything would be okay. Everything is going to be okay, right? Because I'm kidding. This would solve all of my problems. And we'd Celebrate. You know, this, this thing would happen, and we'd celebrate on into eternity. And as the Disney movies always kind of fade off, or whoever else, maybe not just Disney movies, all kinds of movies, we'd kind of fade off into the happily ever after, right? If I could just have this one thing, I'd be happily ever after. Finally, maybe that exact moment comes, whatever it might be for you. That exact moment comes for which we've been living in anticipation. It arrives and the celebration begins. And no matter how wonderful and deserving of celebration the event is, it won't take long to discover what we always discover, which is that God is not finished, that we are not finished, that our depravity and God's salvation are both bigger than our abilities to conceive of them. For thousands and thousands of years now, it's been this kind of deferred good news. Until one day, at one of these celebrations of one or two people's small salvations, an unassuming guest catches wind that the wine has run out. It's a wedding feast. Two people from different families and from different backgrounds are being joined together as one through the establishment of a new covenant relationship. Within their newly established unity remains, though, this kind of precious diversity that doesn't take away from their oneness any more than flesh or spirit takes away from the oneness of the triune God or any more than a rich diversity of color takes away from the oneness of the human race. For a God whose vision of salvation always seems to include the unexpected and even the unwelcome other, this now crippled wedding feast provides just the right setting for the sign that the abundance of God, not the never enough of this world, will have the final say. The host is confused, the guests are drunk. There are six bathtubs of good wine left to keep the party going, and and this is just the beginning of the gospel. And yet, for many of us, some 2,000 years later, salvation really still seems to be little more than a distant hope, a reality that kind of remains somewhere off in the future. And in many ways, that feeling is true. The fullness of Of God's salvation has really only just been opened, but the God of abundance has poured God's own self into our never enough experience of salvation, has shattered any myth of scarcity that we may be tempted to believe, and has freed us from both hunger and greed, inviting all people to drink from the bottomless cup. To eat from the multiplied loaves and to believe in God's abundant grace, anticipating the hour that Jesus speaks of and points us to with this extravagant sign of more wine than anybody could ever want to drink. The hour when all division is healed. When all people share in the inheritance that is coming to the name that is above every name, the name of God's salvation, it is excruciating and wonderful. It is a terrifying rush of excitement. And there is more than enough to go around. Thanks be to God. Amen.